Today we're going to kind of talk about our graduates. We've honored graduates and uh, and I, I, I think it's such a cool deal that we do. It's, it's, you know, there's so many different milestones that we honor, you know, kindergarten and fifth grade and, and then middle school. You know, when, when you graduate middle school, when you go from eighth grade to your freshman year, there are about 209 weeks left in your 940 countdown. Now, 209, that's compared to 940 doesn't seem like a whole lot. But for 209, for those middle schoolers, it seems like a really, really long time. But as parents, right, it doesn't seem that long, does it? But, but then you get to that, that last school year, and, and there's, your time it just dwindles down and, and down and down and down. And so it's, it's such a cool thing as a church for us to honor that and recognize that. Because really, the church is at its best when it's multi-generational. Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about multi-generational church because we are at our best when we are a multi-generational church. And before we jump into scriptures, I want to take you back in time about 380 years to and share a story with you about a young boy who was born in a very small village in England called Woolsthorpe. He was born in 1642. And the, and this young boy, his life, it probably could not have started out any worse than it did. Before this boy was even born, his father died unexpectedly. So he's without a dad before he's even born. He was born premature, which, you know, in, in today's world with our medical technology is, is not as big of a deal. It, it can be, but it's not, it's not a, a huge deal. But in 1642, it was a major deal. Premature babies did not survive. And so because he was premature, it left him weak and, and sick for many, many years. And on top of this, this young mother who, who's now a single mom, who's a widow, she's only 19 years old at the time. She, she's left for, in, in bankruptcy and famine and really without any way to feed her young family. And all of a sudden, when the boy was three years old, a priest came from a neighboring village in North Whittlem. And he proposed to this young mother who was now 22 years old. The priest was almost 70. And he asked this young mother to marry him and to move into the rectory uh, in the other village. There was only one condition. He couldn't bring the boy. She couldn't bring the boy with him. For, for some reason, the priest hated this little boy. And so if this mother was going to marry this priest, the boy ha- had to go somewhere else. He could not go with his mother. Now, for reasons that would be difficult for many of us to understand, uh, but, but really probably just for the sake of financial stability, the mother, this young mother, accepted this priest's offer of marriage. And so she left the boy to her parents to raise him and she got married to the priest, and she moved into the, into the rectory in the other village. And for many, many years, the little boy did not see his mother. Now, at three years old, there's probably not a whole lot that you know. But you know a few things. Like, you know when you've been rejected. You know when the, the people that are supposed to love you ha- have abandoned you. You know those things. And, and later, as, as this young boy would become a man, he would write down in his memoirs about how this little toddler boy would walk over to the other village and he would sit down on a hill that overlooked that rectory where his mother was now living in, in, with this other man and he would just sit there for hours and he said, I would just hate. I would hate for hours. I would hate, he said, I would hate my mother for giving me away and for rejecting he would hate the the priest who took his mother away he would hate the god that that priest represented and and as years went by the hate would just spread in the heart of this boy and so you can imagine when this boy started school he was an angry child i mean it's understandable isn't it he he was a problem for his teachers he he would not learn he would bully the other students he was he was the biggest problem of his very small school and all that happened until one day 
Here's the turning point. You knew there was going to be a turning point in the story, right? One day, a man moves into the village and becomes the new teacher at this school. Now, history doesn't tell us much about this man except his name. The, the man's name was John Houston. And John Houston was a devout Christian. And for some reason, John Houston's eyes became fixed upon this little boy. Even though he would have had a much easier task mentoring and, and teaching and, and tutoring any other student. Re- literally, any other student would have been easier than this little boy. John Houston makes up his mind that he's going to find the beauty in that child somewhere. And he's going to bring it out of him. I'm, he says, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to, to make this little boy love again. And so he, first thing he did, he started praying for this little boy. He started helping him and, and just loving on him and listening to him and, and giving him some extra help in his, in his schoolwork and, and giving him a little extra time. And previously, every year on, on the boy's report cards, this is what the teachers actually wrote on this boy's report card. There, there were three things that every year were said about him. He's lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. Teachers, can you imagine putting that on report cards this day in this day and age? would never happen. Might want to sometimes, but it would never happen. But that's what was on his report card every year. Lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. But as the months turned into years and the, and the years uh, went by, all of a sudden this boy suddenly, who was now shown encouragement and love and appreciation and prayers, he gradually uh, moves out of this little, little darkness, dark world that he's in. This little dark heart of his begins to open up and begins to grow. And I'm not talking about the Grinch, okay? It, it starts to, to warm up. And when it did, to John Houston's amazement, he realized that this boy had an amazing intellectual capacity. He had great academic potential. And all the years that were at it, you know, to, to one another, as, as the years went, it became obvious to the entire school that this, this little boy who was told it was lazy and will not learn and good for nothing was brilliant. All of a sudden, this boy was not a problem anymore. And they realized that especially in the area of math and physics, this young boy excelled. And so when the young boy became a young man and it was time for him to graduate high school, uh, John Houston did everything he could to make sure that this, this boy would go to Trinity College in Cambridge. And when he got there, partly paid by Houston himself, every single seed that God had, had planted inside this young heart started to grow and to bloom. After a few years, he was the talk of the university. After a few more years, he was the talk of the town. And after a few years, he was the talk of the nation. And today, he's the talk of the world because that young boy's name was Sir Isaac Newton. One of the greatest scientists in human history. Sir Isaac Newton's grave in Westminster Abbey in London has this epitaph written on it. It said, here lies Sir Isaac Newton, a man with an intellect close to the divine. Think about that. That's what they said about him. A man with intellect close to the divine. It went on to say, mortals rejoice that such an ornamental humanity existed. Boy, they really knew how to, to wordsmith things back then, didn't they? But I was thinking to myself, as, as I read that epitaph, you got two different verdicts, right? Two different verdicts about the same person. One said that he's lazy, will not learn, and good for nothing. And the other says, a, a, a man with an intellect close to the divine. The same person, lazy, will not learn, good for nothing, an intellect close to the, to the divine. And, and it got me to thinking, what, what was the breaking point? What made that transformation uh, happen? What, what was the thing that caused the, this darkness to cease and disappear and, and, and caused death and life to go away, death and, and darkness to go away, and life and, and light to come into existence for this young boy? What was it? And I'll tell you what it was. The answer was one man 
who accepted his calling to be a spiritual parent to the next generation. One man who chose to, think, to see things that were not seen by the physical eye, who, who dared to surround the next generation with an atmosphere of faith and encouragement to unleash it to its full potential and its full calling. And the reason I share that story with you today is because we need an army of John Houstons in our time. We, we need an army of spiritual mothers and fathers who will realize that their purpose on earth is not just the, the, to fulfill the, the plans and the callings that God has, has placed upon their lives, but to do whatever we can do to pave the way for the next generation to fulfill the calling on their lives as well. Why? Because God is the God of generations. Our God is a God of generations. When God speaks to, to Moses in Exodus 3, here's how he's, he says, here's how you're going to tell people who I am. He says to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name that you shall call me from generation to generation. God introduces himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but not just three individuals, three generations. And what he's really saying is that I am a God of generations. And friends, let me just say, if God is the God of generations, then God's kingdom is the kingdom of generations. All right, God's kingdom is the kingdom of generations, and God's church should be a church of generations. I'm telling you, we are at our best as a church when we're a multi-generational church. And, and as the kingdom of God moves, it should not move from, you know, like a roller coaster from one generation to the next where it just goes up and down and, and one generation is good and then the next generation is not so good and, and, and we just do this roller coaster ride. Instead, the, the kingdom of God should move from generation to generation like glory to glory, glory to glory. That's how the kingdom of God is designed to move. But let me tell you, it won't happen automatically. It will only happen if there's an army of people like John Houston. People who realize that the most precious calling as a Christian is to be a spiritual father or spiritual mother to the next generation. And let me just tell you, this is not something that we just get to outsource to kids' church and, and to kids' leaders and youth ministry. I, like, I am so grateful for, for those ministries. But, but I am so grateful that our kids go to a, a, an atmosphere where they can learn biblical truths on their level. But, but 30 minutes once a week is not going to cut it. All right, 30 minutes uh, in, in the middle of the week on Wednesday nights is not going to cut it. That, that's not how we raise the next generation of, of Christians. we we got to be intentional about pouring into them all the time. Not just on Sunday mornings or not just on Wednesday nights, all the time. In fact, I would say if you're 20 years uh, older or, or more, you should already be looking over your shoulder now and spot someone younger than yourself to begin pouring into, to, to begin praying for and encourage them and surrounding them with an atmosphere of faith. I have a, a leadership principle that, that I've kind of formulated in my head. I'm sure somebody else somewhere a lot smarter and popular than me articulated it a little bit better. But this was my idea is that our, a leadership principle based on like a tic-tac-toe board. You all know what a tic-tac-toe board is, right? Our younger generation would call it a hashtag. But um, you, take, you take that tic-tac-toe board, right? And you're the middle square because your life revolves around you. You're the center of your life. So it makes sense that you would be the center square. But you've got three rows above you, right? There are three squares above the middle square. And that's, in those squares, you need to find people who will be mentors for you, who can pour down into you, that can, that can invest in you. And it would be great if you had three. Chances are you're probably not going to find three. You're just not. Relationships are tough. Life is difficult. Life is busy. You're probably not going to find three. But if you could find three, that would be fantastic. But, but in that top row of squares are mentors, people that are pouring out into you. 
In the middle, you got yourself, and then you got squares on the side, right? So in the middle, you put people who are, who are your colleagues, your coworkers, people who are your contemporaries, and, and, and you're encouraging them, but you're just doing life with them, right? They, I wouldn't say accountability partners, but, but maybe. You're just doing life with them. These are the people that they're in the same stage of life as you, and, and you're walking side by side, and you encourage them, and they encourage you, and, and you just do life together. And in that row below, that, that row below, those are the people that are in the next generation behind you. And those are the people that you start pouring into, that you're investing in, that you're doing for them what the people in the top row are doing for you. Because that's what, what God has called us to do, to do for the next generation what somebody once did for us. And we see this all throughout the Bible, right? Uh, we see this in the relationship between Moses and Joshua in Exodus 33. How, how Moses would come into the tabernacle and spend time in the presence of God at the end of the day. And, and I just got to believe that Moses being the pastor of the worst church in the history of the world. It, he would want to spend that, the, the last moments of his day in the presence of God by himself. right? Like I'm just going to relax and I'm going to be in the presence of God and it's going to be great. And I can put all of these problems, all, they're complaining because they don't have enough manna or it doesn't taste good. Or you know, we need different things. I'm going to put all of those complaints on the outside. And I'm just going to be me and God. But Moses didn't do that, did he? And no, he's so anxious about the next generation that he, he brings Joshua in with him. Most, most biblical scholars believe Joshua was somewhere about 15, 16, 17 years old at the time. And Moses introduces the, the, the next generation to the presence of God. And in doing so, he's investing seeds that will, that will later come into action and start to bloom in, in the life and the ministry of Joshua much, much later. We, we see the same story, the same theme in, in the story of Eli and Samuel in 1 Samuel. Uh, in 1 Samuel 3, the young boy Samuel, he's sleeping in the temple. That's a kid that was brought up in the church, isn't it? He's sleeping in the temple. And at night, he hears God's voice, and God's voice calls out to him, says, Eli, and, and Eli's like, I don't know what's going on. And so he goes to Samuel, right? Because Samuel is the, is the one who's mentoring him, who's shepherding him, who's guiding him. And he goes to, Eli, or to Samuel, and, and, and he says, look, God is calling you. And so here's how you respond to God. Because Eli didn't know how to, or, uh, excuse me, Samuel didn't know how to respond to God, did he? Why? Because he was young. Because he hadn't been in the presence of God yet. He, and so Samuel, or Eli, this, this veteran priest who's, who's a veteran, we would call in our day and age Christian, but he's just a veteran spiritual leader, is telling Eli, or excuse me, telling Samuel, I'm going to get all these names confused all day. He's telling Samuel, this is how you respond. And so the next time God calls out to you, this is what you do. Thank God there was a Samuel, uh, an Eli there to mentor Samuel, to teach him how to do this. Because when God calls to, to, um, to him the next time, him. When he calls to him the next time, right? What happens? He responds, he says, here I am, Lord. Here I am, speak to me. And in that moment, God begins to speak to one of the greatest prophets that would ever live. That one of the greatest prophets is ever born in that moment. Because he had a mentor. He had somebody that was investing in him. And that guy, Samuel, he grows up and he becomes the mentor of David. He does for David what Eli had done for him. Samuel is the one who would surround David pretty much like John Houston surrounded Isaac Newton with, with confidence in knowing that God is with you. Think about this for a minute. Do you, not even, do you remember that, that not even David's father thought enough of David? Like David's father didn't think he was good enough to be the king. He rejected him. Uh, Samuel's going out to Jesse's house, David's father. He's going to go out to the house and he's going to find one of Jesse's sons and he's going to appoint him a new king. And so all of Jesse's sons come in and they line up except for one. 
except for David. David's out in the field working. And, and Jesse, the father, doesn't stop to say, hey, hey, why don't we stop this for a minute and let's go get David, bring him in. No, that's not his thought, is it? His thought is, oh, well, David's out in the field working. He's, he's not going to be the pick anyway. So let's just leave him out there. Like, he doesn't even think enough to bring David in to be a part of the conversation. But Samuel, Samuel sees with eyes that are spiritual eyes. He sees, he sees what the eyes can't see. He sees with the heart, and he surrounds, and he dedicates his time in, in, to mentoring and being a spiritual father for a young generation to this man who would be, eventually become the greatest king that Israel had ever known. We have to view the next generation as, as a mustard seed generation. Jesus speaks about the mustard seed in Mark chapter uh, 4, verse 31. He says, The kingdom is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that, that the birds can perch in its shade. This is exactly like Isaac Newton, a small, insignificant seed. When you look at the exterior, there's nothing uh, extraordinary about it. It's a very small seed. But it could come nowhere near the explosive potential that was buried inside that seemingly insignificant seed. What is needed for the mustard seed to, to what's needed for the mustard seed to go from that size to this potentially great plant? What, what's needed? Someone to plant it, right? You gotta have someone to plant that seed. And, and when it plant it, it grows. But let me tell you, it doesn't plant itself. Seeds don't plant themselves. If you're a farmer, you know this. Seeds don't plant themselves. You don't just look at, out at your field and say, Corn seeds, plant, grow, right? It doesn't work like that, does it? It would be great if it did, but it doesn't. You have to actually plant it. And, and I'm just telling you, church, that that's what God is calling us to do, to plant seeds. I've seen so many times seeds that have been planted, and, and I'll tell you, the, the greatest joy of, of my ministry, it, whether youth ministry, preaching ministry, whatever, is, is just seeing those mustard seeds that were planted that seemed insignificant at the time. And seeing, seeing them grow into their full potential. I think Bobby would agree with this. But I, I would say the thing that I loved most about, about youth ministry. Is watching kids have that kind of that aha moment. Um, to have that, that moment where, where it, it just clicked. Teachers, you can relate to this. I think when, when you're teaching in school and, and you're teaching a concept. And all of a sudden you, know, you got a kid that's struggling with it. And all of a sudden they get it. And it just clicks for them. And they start to... to to be able to use what, whatever it is you're teaching. That's a rewarding moment, isn't it? And, and in ministry, it's the same way. When you see a kid finally understand that, that, that there's a God who loves them, who, who wants to be in a relationship with them, that they are valued. I'm telling you, those moments when, when you get it, there's, there's nothing like it. It's addictive. It, it, it's, it's addictive. You want to see everybody have that kind of moment. My, my favorite moments in youth ministry were, were watching young people be baptized into Christ by adults who weren't a part of our church staff. I'm telling you, that's such an amazing moment when you see a young person give their life to Christ and, and they're going to be baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection and they're doing it by someone that's not on church staff. That's such a cool moment because you know what that means? It means that somebody outside of the church staff has been investing in them, has been pouring into their life. That's such a cool moment. It's such a cool thing to see. Church, do you realize that, that that's what we're all called to be doing, that we're called to do for the next generation what somebody once did for you. Think about how you came to Christ. Think about, we're, we're all here today because somebody somewhere told us about the love of Jesus, right? Somebody had to have. That's why we're here. What would your life be like if that person hadn't existed? If that person had never told you about the love of Jesus? What would your life be like? See, that's what we're called to do for the next generation. We're called to be that person 
to somebody else, to, to somebody behind us. Look, church, we, we are responsible for raising the next generation of Christian leaders. And our job is to hand the church off better to them than it was when we took over, right? We're, we're, we're going to raise the next generation of Christian leaders, and eventually we're going to hand the keys of leadership over to them. And our job is to make sure that they're well-trained, that they're well-prepared for the task. But also that the church is in good shape, that, that, it's ready, that it's running on all cylinders, that it's ready to go. I mean, think about that for a moment. A lot of you have been a part of this church for a very long time. And you're familiar with names like Damon Ray and Mary Lou Stevers and Carl Munn and people who faithfully stewarded the church who handed the keys of leadership over to the next generation. And they handed those keys over to people like Mike Bell and Bob Walker and Roy Allen Bronner. And they have handed those keys now over to us and church. It's our responsibility to lead young people in such a way that they love and follow Jesus that, that when they're able to, to take the keys that they're able to take them and run with them. You know, you hear this phrase, the church is always one generation away from extinction. And I don't agree with that because the church is never dependent upon one generation. But the next generation will be the generation that pushes the church farther than what we could push it. And we've got we've to do our part to raise them up so that they can take over, that they can lead in such a way. I want to wrap up our time this morning with one more story from the Word of God. It's, it's found in Luke chapter 1. You probably know the story. It's about a teenage girl named Mary. Scholars think she's somewhere in the age of 13, 14, 15 years old at the time. Imagine that. The gospel of Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospels, right? The gospel of Jesus starts with God asking a teenage girl for help. Now, no offense to teenage girls in here, okay? I, I mean this in the least offensive way possible. But if you've spent any time around teenage girls at all, you know, the, like the last people you're going to ask for help are teenage girls, all right? Especially at that 13, 14, there's just a whole lot of drama. And, and so this is like the last group you're going to ask, right? But this is who God chooses to ask. I think there's a lesson in that for us. God always uses unlikely people to accomplish incredible things. And so, church, we shouldn't be afraid to ask unlikely people to do incredible things. Because when the Spirit of God is on them, who's, who's for us to say that they can't do it, right? But, but the story starts this way. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a town of Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And that's at the very end of this encounter, God sharing with this teenager that her life is so much more important than she could have ever imagined. Her life has more value than she could ever begin to think about. And Mary, trembling, responds this way, Let it be to me according to your words. But then it says, And then the angel left her. Let it be uh, to me according to your words. But then the angel left her. Pay attention to that last line that the angel left her because I think that's important because we see this happen a lot of times in young people's lives. The, the youth conference ends. Friday on camp comes. The Emmaus walk is over. They've, they've been on these high emotional moments, these spiritual moments, and then those moments end and the goosebumps are gone. And, and I've seen this so many times where, where kids make a decision on, on Friday at camp and, and, and they're getting ready to go home and you're just praying, God, please send them back to a church that's full of spiritual 
moms and dads, spiritual parents that will, will nourish this decision that they've made. They're, they're making this decision to say, hey, let it be to me, um, let it be to me according to your words. Whatever you're calling me to do, God, let, it, let that happen. But, but we've got to be there to nourish it, right? To nurture it, to, to encourage it. Every time on Friday, that's what I'm praying. God, that, that they'll just go back to a church full of spiritual parents. And, and, and I pray that they'll come back to a church that's full of spiritual fathers and mothers because that's exactly what God had promised Mary, that you're not alone, right? There's, there's a woman called Elizabeth, and, and she's pregnant too. She's gone a little bit further in the process. She knows what's about to happen to you. So, so just look for her and spend time with her. That's what God's telling her to do, right? Go, go spend a few hours, a few days, a few months, whatever, with, with a generation older than you. And, and Scripture says that right after this happens, after this amazing calling moment where, where Mary understands the calling on her life, it says, at that time Mary got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. And so all of a sudden now God is moving in the young generation and God is moving in an in, in older generation, in the parent generation. And when Mary comes to Nazareth in Galilee, she meets Elizabeth. And when these two women meet, these two generations meet, the Holy Spirit falls on both of them. And that's the beauty of spiritual family, really, is that that the Holy Spirit is not limited to one generation. It doesn't work in just one generation at a time. The Holy Spirit is able to work on all generations at the same time. All of a sudden, we realize it's it's not only Mary who's in need of Elizabeth, the spiritual mother, but, but actually the presence of the young generation stirs the child that Elizabeth is expecting. And and the Holy Spirit is refilling and refueling her life as well. That's the beauty of multi-generational church, is that that every generation needs every generation. And can I just tell you that that the devil hates that. Satan absolutely hates that. When generations connect, when generations connect and and the Spirit of God is poured out on both of of those generations, it'll minister to both generations. The devil hates that. That's why the devil works overtime, I think, to create generational gaps in the church. And and look, there there are generational gaps all over in our church and in other churches all around the world. There are generational gaps. And our job uh, is is to to bridge those gaps, to make it possible for for generations to come to want to worship, not necessarily in the same way that we worship, but worship the same God that we worship. Here's what I think happens all too often. We get accustomed to our preferences, right? And I'm not picking on any generation, okay? This is all generations. We get accustomed to picking, uh, to getting rigid in, in our preferences. And there's no flexibility anymore, right? right? We, we, get, we get rigid, we get stiff, and, and this is the way things have to be done because this is the way things have always been done, right? And then uh, another generation says, well, hey, we'd like to do something a little bit different. Can I tell you the greatest thing that you can do for the next generation is listen to them? You listen to them, listen to the insights that they give. When my grandfather was, uh, my, my maternal grandfather, Bob Jones, when he was deaning uh, elementary school camp, he's up in his 70s, and I thought, how in the world is he going to be able to connect with fourth graders? But he did. He was incredible at that. But one of the greatest things that he did for me while I was in high school and thinking about ministry was that he gave me influence and input. He listened to me. He, he learned from my perspectives on things because I had a different perspective than he had. And what he, he didn't say it at the time, but what he was teaching me was that, hey, I'm going to give you input and influence, but don't, don't forget that, that someone gave that to you, and you need to give that to someone else. You need to give away what's been given to you. 
If you're going to have influence, if you're going to be given influence and perspective, you need to give that away to, to someone else. And so, look, the greatest thing that we can do for, for the next generation is to listen to them. To listen to them and, 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 and train them um, and, and just be a multi-generational church. It's, it's why I think it's so important that we worship together. Because we're training them. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm so thankful that the kids are able to go to, to kids' church and, and learn biblical truths on their level. But it's important that, we, that they're in here to worship with us because we're training them to worship. We're, we're showing them what worship looks like. Now, when they get older, they may not want to worship to the same songs that we want to worship with. And that's okay. Just remember this. Just remember this. If you're a young person who doesn't like the hymns and you complain about hymns, just remember that there will be a generation that will come behind you that will not like the songs that you like. Okay? That's, that's fact. They will. And if you're an older person who doesn't like the, the, the songs that, that are the, the contemporary songs, remember this, that when you were that age, you didn't like them either. Okay? You just didn't. You, you, you're, it's, it's, how, it's just the fluidity of the church. Okay? It's okay. It doesn't make one right. It doesn't make one wrong. It's just, it's, what I'm getting at is we can't be so stuck and rigid in our preferences that we, we create gaps between generations. Instead, we've got to be flexible enough that we can bridge those generation, generational gaps. That we can bridge the gaps because the next generation of church leaders is dependent upon us being able to do that. You've heard me say this often, and, and honestly, I'll probably say it every time it fits, but your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something that you do. It may be someone that you raise. And listen, it doesn't have to be your physical children. It doesn't have to be your physical children. The whole world, the, the, kingdom, the whole kingdom is full of people who are right now for the very first time hearing God's voice. And they need security and they need stability and they need love and they need encouragement. They need a parental generation to lift them up. And honestly, I can think of no greater or more honorable calling than that. And so here's what I'd like for you to do in, in just the last minute or two that we have left. Is just, I, I would like just to think about opening up your heart to this dimension of being a follower of the God of generations. Because there's someone out there who, who needs you. There is. There is someone out there who needs you. And if you've ever studied church history, one of the tragic elements of church history is this. Even, even in the past 200 years is when God has been doing an amazing work all over the world, the majority of these movements have been one generation movements. Like they, they go, they, they're good. And something good has come, and then it's gone. And the next generation, it, it just disappears. And then a third generation comes, and there's something good. And then the next generation, it, it goes away. It, and so my prayer would simply be this. That, that we would start now to connect with the next generation of, church, uh, of Christians. So that, so that whatever God does here that's good, and I think God is doing a lot of good stuff here, that it's not just a one-generational movement. That, that we, we stand on the shoulders of what people in Glendale did 200 years ago, right? And I want in 200 years from now, if the Lord doesn't come back by then, for, for whoever worships in this area to be standing on our shoulders because of what we have done. That, we don't, that we're not just a one-generation church, that we're a multi-generational church that has influence for, for as long as the Lord should choose to, to remain in heaven. That we would be that kind of church. And so here's what you can do. I know it's awkward to have those kind of conversations with young people, especially if, if you don't really know them yet. But, but think of a, begin to think of a young person who you can influence, who you can have influence with, that, you can, that, that might listen to you, that you could mentor. 
And, and look, it doesn't have to be a teenager. Like if you're 70, think about somebody who's 40, right? If you're 40, think about someone who's, who's 25. If you're 25, think about someone who's 15. You know, start thinking about who you might be able to have influence with. And here's what I w- would ask you to do this week. You don't have to have any conversations with them. Just pray for them. Just start praying for them every day. Just start praying for that person. That, that, that God would open up a door for you to have influence with them. That God would do amazing things in their life. That God would bless them. That All the kind of things that we pray for people. Just start praying for them this week. And here's what I think will happen. That as you do this, that God will open up doors for our church to connect generations. That, that, to see the kingdom of God move from glory to glory to glory to glory. But in order for that to happen, we need to open our hearts and allow God to give us a genuine father's heart, a mother's heart, the heart of a spiritual parent, the heart that, that once allowed a young boy called Isaac Newton to grow out of spiritual darkness and death and into something amazing, into, something, into a brand new destiny. And so that's my prayer for all of us this week, that we would identify somebody and we would begin to pray for them. In fact, let's just do that right now as we close our, our time this morning. Let's just simply do that. Let's spend a moment praying for whoever, whoever it is that God puts on your heart. Just close your eyes and, and begin praying for them. And then I'll pray for us and we'll wrap up today.